would encourage you to open up your Bibles to Matthew 8. That will be our text this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you. You're welcome to use it this morning and even keep it if you want it. We are in week four of our series called Follow Me, looking at the gospel of Matthew and specifically considering what does it mean to follow Jesus and considering that from a biblical perspective. We started in Matthew 9 with Jesus saying, follow me to Matthew. And immediately, Matthew, the tax collector, left everything behind and quite literally followed him in obedience. Then we turned to Matthew 4 and we found Peter and Andrew. Jesus comes up to them and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What we see in that story is that following Jesus comes with life transformation. He makes you into something. And two weeks ago, we walked through that, and Paul explained it to us theologically in 2 Corinthians 5, that when you are in Christ, when you've believed in him unto salvation, you've heard the gospel and truth, and you've believed according to Ephesians 1.13, when you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, and that old and that new, as Paul puts out for us is that we've been reconciled to God. Our sin is forgiven. Our slavery has been removed and we're given the ministry of reconciliation. We are made into something. We're transformed into something. And Paul would say that we're made into now his ambassador. Those whom he'd send on his behalf into the world. And so Paul explains theologically that life transformation that Jesus promises when he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He intended for us to change. He intended for us to have a purpose. He intended for us to have a mission. Then last week, we considered Jesus's first sermon as recorded in Matthew, a message often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And we looked at it in its entirety because just as Jesus had begun to gather a crowd, as he'd been collecting followers, some like Peter and Andrew, whom he had called, others who had seen his work or maybe even experienced the healings that we saw at the end of Matthew 4. But all these people were interested in his teachings and wondered, what does it mean to follow him? What should we do? So Jesus, with a gathered crowd, as he has his disciples before him, begins to put forward, what does it mean to follow him? What does it look like? What does it mean to enter into the kingdom? And if you were here last week, you know that what Jesus said is it doesn't just mean that you claim my name. And it doesn't just mean that you believe however you might define that and that that will be sufficient. He actually says and puts before them this idea that whatever you believe about me is fine is not okay. He doesn't say just carry on as if nothing has happened. He doesn't say follow all the rules and it'll be enough. And he doesn't paint any of the pictures of the easy believism that is commonly passed off as Christianity in our culture. 
No, what he does is something unique and something extraordinary. He puts something significant before them, proclaiming who he was. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we can never stop going back to passages like this, because if you dig into it, you find that what Jesus is putting before them, this idea of being blessed is this idea that you have a joy that springs up within you as a result of salvation. That you'll be happy, you'll be blessed, you'll have this joy springing in you if you're poor in spirit. And what that means here, the picture that Jesus is putting before you is of a beggar who has nothing and has no merit. He cannot earn the kingdom. He cannot buy his way in. And so Jesus says, this is a blessing. It's a blessing to understand that you in and of yourself are not sufficient for the kingdom. It's a blessing to know that you have nothing to bring before God in order to make him love you. Jesus calls them then to find their joy in proclaiming their insufficiency. Why? Because he's sufficient. And then he adds, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, you will have a joy that springs up in you as a result of salvation, this time coming from mourning. And mourning would come from an awareness of your sin. A sin that causes you to grieve and to recognize that this sin within you has bankrupted you. And what Jesus does is he paints the picture of the depths of salvation and what it really means to believe and what it really means to follow him. That it's more than just wearing a t-shirt or a necklace or even following a set of rules. It's more than just weekly church attendance. It's more than saying that I am a Christian. It is about proclaiming his sufficiency. It's about proclaiming his enoughness, his fullness, his ability to fill you completely in light of the total void and insufficiency you bring to the table. Jesus goes on then in this message to show that proclaiming this His sufficiency and your insufficiency is what it means to be the light of the world. That that's what we put on display. That's what we don't hide under a basket. That Jesus is enough. And I'm not. Friends, the worst message you could ever put before the world is that you are enough. That your life Your merit, your task, your deeds is enough. That somehow you've got your act so together that God is pleased by that. That's the worst message we can put before the world because it's a testimony of works. Jesus is challenging his disciples, these people who want to follow him, to understand that it's not enough that they are insufficient and that he is enough. And Jesus goes on then to say that proclaiming that, living that out, that whoever hears these words of mine and does them, that that is a foundation that is built on a rock. 
that that is salvation, that that is full dependency on him. And friends, that's what it means to follow Jesus insofar as he's gotten through Matthew 7. So this morning, as we continue in Matthew's gospel, we open up Matthew chapter 8. As Jesus has finished his teaching and now begins to show this band of followers, some of whom will believe fully and some of whom won't, he begins to show them his authority over everything. Watch this, Matthew 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leopard came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now consider that scene for just a moment. There's a large crowd of people around Jesus, and he's approached by a leper. The very definition of an unclean man. A man who is at this moment breaking every societal norm and cultural standard by entering into public, by entering into the realm of normal folks, and approaching Jesus. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, and frankly at nearly every point in Jesus' ministry, the crowd would have been outwardly showing their disapproval. Who is this guy to come to Jesus? How dare this man come be by us? He doesn't deserve it. He shouldn't be here. You can only imagine the things that are going on in the crowd, but to Jesus, the crowd doesn't matter. And more importantly to this man, it doesn't matter because he comes anyway. And he comes in desperation, and he comes in need. It's the picture of the lowest of the low reaching out to the Almighty. Why? Because this leper knew that Jesus had authority. That's going to be a big word for us this morning, authority. And I'm going to say it a lot, and this is what I mean by it. That Jesus is the sovereign king. That he is absolutely in charge and over everything. And if you need some pictures to help you with that, I'd point you to Genesis 1 and John 1. Put it together and you get this idea that Jesus spoke everything into existence. You exist because he said so. That's authority. That he can speak anything he wants. He can change anything he wants. He can manipulate anything he wants. He can turn anything he wants into anything else he wants. By his word. That's authority. He is in charge. And if you look at the words of the leper in verse 2, he understands that. For he walks up to him and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you want to, you can. You have the ability. You can command my body to do anything you want, including absolutely recovering from the most debilitating nervous system disorder that they had at the time. And then, according to verse 3, Jesus does. Jesus reaches out his man 
his hand to this leper, a man who had probably not been touched in years. He reaches out and touches him and says, I will be clean. Jesus doesn't tell him to get his act together. Jesus doesn't tell him to follow all the rules. Jesus doesn't say, hey, dirty guy, clean it up and then come back. No, he steps into the middle of this hurt and broken man's life who's falling apart and he touches him. It's a testimony that tells us that if we're hurt, if we're broken, if the insufficiency of our life is so thoroughly bubbling up that we can't even accomplish what we want to accomplish, that we should go to Jesus. That we should turn to him, that we should come to him because he is willing. He's willing. And he has the authority to do absolutely anything. A couple of verses later in verse 5, it's actually just we skip verse 4. When he'd heard, when he'd entered into Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Look at me, consider this. In the first story, the leper comes because he knows Jesus has authority. Now, in the second story in Matthew 8, a soldier comes on behalf of somebody else because he knows that Jesus has authority. Listen to how this plays out. The soldier testifies to that. Verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Verse 10, and when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who follow him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He sees in Jesus authority. He sees in Jesus one who can command anything and it happens. Verse 13, and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go and let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. If we lean into this text, we see that Jesus has healed a leper who is in his presence. And now he heals a servant who is far away. Heals one by touching him. Heals another by the words of his mouth. And listen to me. He does all of this because he has authority. So in chapter 8, we see him use his authority with those in his presence, and we see him use his authority with those far away. The text continues, verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Side note, Peter has a mother-in-law. How does one get a mother-in-law? Correct. Huge implications. We'll talk about that some other day. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought him 
they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fill that which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. We watched Jesus heal a leper in front of him. We watched him heal a servant far away. And now he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And according to the text, she didn't even ask him to. In fact, no one seems to have asked him to. But Jesus knew her need. And he was sovereign and he exercised his authority over her. And he healed those who were oppressed by demons. Casting out spirits, he healed those who were sick. Jesus had authority. And friends, if we keep looking at stories in this chapter, and I don't have time to look at all of them, what we would find in verses 23 through 27 is that Jesus gets into a boat with his disciple and a great storm comes up and the boat begins to get swamped and the text tells us that Jesus is asleep, which is to say that he's not at all worried. But the storm is enough to rattle his disciples, to make them feel very unsure, to make them feel very unsafe, and so they wake him. And in that moment, Jesus stands up and he rebukes the storm. He calms it completely. Verse 26 says that there is a great calm. Now, if you want to think about that for a second, that's wind, that's wave, that's water, that's calm. That's an incredible act of physics. I mean, there's so much in this story that if you want to get into the mechanics of how all that works, to go from a nervous system disorder to not healed, to go from crazy storm to it all stopped, molecules like, nope, we're done. Adam's like, we're pausing, stop sign. Jesus has an incredible authority over the storm such that the molecules of water and the atoms of gas stopped. Jesus had the authority to command even the weather. And the following story in chapter 8. Next we'd find Jesus casting out demons and sending them into pigs. And again we find Jesus exerting his authority, this time over those who oppose him, and those in the spiritual realm. Because, friends, I want us to see this. Jesus has authority over the conditions of our bodies. He has the authority over our winds, waves, and every other aspect of nature. He has authority over everything in the spiritual realm. Even those things that oppose him, he has authority over everything. Paul describes this in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is completely and entirely sufficient for everything because he has authority over everything, including you. 
In Matthew 8, 18 through 22, he tells two stories that don't fit in this chapter. He tells two stories that don't align with the theme of Jesus Christ having complete authority over absolutely everything and them falling into obedience. They don't seem to fit. Let's look at the first one. Verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I will follow you wherever you go. These sound like words of great commitment. These sound like words that declare belief. They sound like words that declare, I will follow you through anything. Except they seem to be completely hollow. How do we know that? Because Jesus didn't buy it. Jesus saw through it. Jesus, in full authority of that moment, listens to this guy and sees right through him and says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, and I don't have a pillow. To this man, Jesus says, following me will be difficult. To this man, Jesus doesn't say, thank you for your profession. Keep doing what you're doing. No, to this man, Jesus makes plain that there is a cost to following him. And it matters. In fact, in this man, you see that the mission matters. Because if it didn't, if following him didn't look like us obeying what he asks us to do, then his pillow would have nothing to do with the conversation. He would have just granted him belief. Oh, Thank you for joining the club. We will tally your mark in the book. We'll add you to our list of statistics and we'll make sure we report that to the commission. That's not what he says because Jesus sees through it. It seems to be that there will be some who claim to follow who do not follow. There seem to be some who do not want to pay the cost. And in his authority, Jesus saw that this man was uncommitted. He knew that he was just speaking. He knew he wasn't real. Jesus had great authority. And this man rejected it. Verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Lord, I want to. I want to come with you. I want to follow you. I want to be a part of this movement. I want everything you've got for me. But first, I got to take care of something. I got to do this. You should know that the grammar of this sentence suggests that his father is not dead yet. Which is to say 
that he's not saying, give me a couple of days to go to a funeral and then I'll come with you. Rather, what he's saying is, I need to go home and take care of some stuff. My parents are aging and I want to be responsible. I want to do these things. I want to take care of this stuff and then I'll follow you. He's making an excuse. And Jesus, who has authority, sees through it all. And he calls this man to follow him. By way, you should know, the text makes it clear that neither of these men followed through. Gospel of Luke actually adds a third story, but we're not touching on it. Neither of these guys followed through. The third guy in Luke doesn't follow through either, which seems to get to this idea that Jesus isn't just trying to tally up people who will show up every once in a while. He's not trying to tally up people who will just claim his name but not live any differently. He's not just trying to collect people. He's collecting followers. So what is my point? When Jesus says, follow me, he doesn't mean make a list of things to do and make sure you do them all as if following Jesus was a checklist. And he doesn't mean follow all the rules and make sure you look this way as if outward appearance and looking like you have your act together is what matters. And he doesn't say or mean claim that you believe and do the minimal amount of Christian stuff so that your friends won't question you. That was my definition of Christianity as a freshman in college, just to confess it to you. Friends, he sees through our excuses. He sees through our weak attempts to please him. And if you follow the text, I want you to see this plainly. I want you to see this clearly. He's asking broken and needy people in. The kingdom is available to absolutely everybody. You don't have to be a great rule follower to get in. You don't have to do it all right to get in. But he does cut clean and clear right to the heart of where we're at and what we're about. You cannot fool him. He's absolutely aware such that if you say, I'll go anywhere, and you won't, there's a problem. When Pam and I were considering moving here, I was talking to the director of advancement at Dallas Seminary. We were talking about where we were willing to go. I was explaining to this guy on the phone, Pam and I have talked, we've prayed through this. We're really willing to go anywhere in the world God would call us. He said, that's interesting. Because I'm looking at your map. And on the map of places you're willing to go, the upper Midwest is not on your list. Like, what do you mean? He said, we go anywhere. He goes, no, no, I'm looking at your map. You've indicated you're unwilling to go to North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa. Like, there's a whole area in the middle of the map. You're clearly not willing to go. Huh. Well, check some of those boxes. We'll be fine with it. You should know ever since that day, Pam and I have been adamant about praying that we will not move to the Caribbean. (laughs) It does not matter. We will not move to an island. 
when we say we're willing to go wherever he calls us, we have to mean it. That's what following him means. And when we say we'll do whatever it is he puts before us, that we'll represent him in anything and in everything, we have to do it. Wednesday, I pulled into the parking lot here at the church. I had a ton of stuff to do. I had an 11 o'clock appointment in order to honor Kim, our administrative assistant. I had to get a ton of stuff done so I could make her life easier. I came into the parking lot with a mission and a purpose. And as I turned around the corner, I saw there was another car in our parking lot. I didn't recognize it. And as I pulled in, there were some kids running around. And as I pulled in my parking lot, I, I meet a lady. She's a Kurdish woman. And she explains very apologetically that she has a flat tire and she is so sorry. She'll try to get her car out of our parking lot as fast as she can. And I said, that's okay. Don't worry about it. We're gracious people. Park here as long as you want. And I turn and I walk away. And for about three steps, I start celebrating what a gracious person I am because I let somebody park in our parking lot. Man, what a charitable believer I am. And it's like the Lord hit me with a two-by-four. What kind of a self-righteous jerk are you? I had this list of things I had to do. And I found myself in a couple of steps. Wait, but Lord, you don't understand. If I don't get this done, if I don't get this done, if I don't get this paperwork done, then Kim's going to be late. Like, what she needs is somebody to change her tire. This is not rocket science. My dad made us change tires before we could even take our test to get a driver's license. I know how to do this. So I pause and I turn around and I say, would you like me to change your tire? And I changed her tire. And we had about a half an hour conversation. It was about 25 minutes. I'm faster than that. That's pride moment. We had a good conversation about the Lord, the church, why we exist. And and I don't tell you that because I, I, I want you to think that I'm great. And I don't tell you that because I want you to feel prideful or I want you to think, oh, he's a tire changer. That's our pastor. I want you to remember that like minute and a half when I was a numbskull and I was selfish and I was driven by my own motives. And then I want you to be mindful of the Holy Spirit in your life that when Jesus has transformed us, when he's changed us, that that impacts everything, including Wednesday mornings when we've got a long to-do list. That we represent him all the time, everywhere that we're his ambassadors, and the king in the middle of my busyness gets to say, change the tire. And I need to say, okay. It was amazing I got all my stuff done Wednesday. It wasn't an issue. Friends, when Jesus says, follow me, he means follow him. 
He means out of the overflow of joy that comes from a salvation inside of you that appreciates that in and of yourself, you have nothing to give the king in order to gain entrance into the kingdom. It's to say, I've got nothing and Jesus and Jesus alone has saved me. He gave me what I did not deserve. He gave me mercy, he gave me grace, and a litany of other blessings. Therefore, I will go where he goes, I will say what he says, and I will do what he tells me to do. And that he rules over every single second on my calendar, even when I stink at it. I don't have a word to apply this to your life this morning. Why? Because that's not my job. What I want to do, as we've been doing this whole series, is to call you into his word, is to call you to follow Jesus. And as I've said every week in this series, and we'll say for the next four, I want to call you to read through the book of Matthew, to pray through it, and seek grace-filled, grace-fueled obedience. Words chosen carefully. We're not trying to put upon you a yoke of slavery as if your checklist matters. I've tried to make that clear. We're not trying to put upon you any kind of slavery that you've got to do or accomplish anything to merit God's favor. That's not Christianity. That's not following him. Following him means... That we watch his life. And we watch his life by studying his word. And by studying his word and looking through it and praying through it, you start to see examples and you start to see a heart and you look at it and you go, mm, that's not me. Father, could you help that be me? Could you, could you just help that be me? Because then you'll be, you'll be humored at how the opportunity then like, hmm, I gotta be patient now. Good. Wasn't counting on that. Let's pray. Let's be a people that follow Jesus, that follow his examples, that study his words, and then does what he tells us to do. We want to be a people seeking grace-filled, grace-fueled obedience as we follow him. They pray for us. Jesus, in this passage, you show extraordinary authority as if we had anything to question. With a word you spoke stars, planets, giraffes, and everything else into existence. With a word you healed a man of a debilitating disease. With a, another word you healed somebody at quite a long distance. With another word you healed a mother-in-law and many with demons. Father, you're the king. Jesus, you're the king. And you have total authority. You testified to that Matthew 28. All authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's people who believed in you, who sought after you, who have sought salvation in you, who are seeking now to follow you. 
Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word? Would you open the eyes of our hearts to enlighten us to who you are as we study you and seek you in your word that we might be transformed into your likeness as a people who put on display for the world our insufficiency and your sufficiency. Call us to a greater grace-filled and grace-fueled obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.